Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi. We're familiar with the story of the nuns and the data that shows the disaffiliation of young people from religion. But does this data tell the whole story? On this episode of the Commonweal Podcast, Ellen Connick of Springtide Research talks with Commonweal Managing Editor Katie Daniels about a new report on the state of religion and young people and how its findings reveal that terms like affiliated and unaffiliated may be insufficient when it comes to understanding their inner and outer lives. This is the Commonweal Podcast. So I'm here with Katie Daniels, our managing editor. Hi, Katie. Hi, Dominic. It's great to have you on the Commonwealth Podcast. So tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear today. So I had a conversation with Ellen Koenig, now of Springtide Institute, but... Ellen and I actually go back. We overlapped when I was an intern at Commonweal, and she was our projects and community events manager. So it was a real pleasure to get to have this conversation with her, both because it allowed us to catch up and also because Springtide's recently released this report, The State of Religion and Young People 2020. And it's really interesting to me. They surveyed the religious beliefs of 13 to 25-year-olds. And as someone who just makes the tail end of that range, it was really fascinating to read this, sort of get an inside look at, as you said, Dominic, the nuns and how this report complicates our understanding of this group. So, Katie, an interesting term came up in your conversation. I'm wondering if you could just sort of tell the folks about it. That's the term relational authority. Sure. So, for this demographic, the researchers found that religious institutions don't quite have the same authority they used to. In other words, they can't really rely solely on their institutional credibility. So the report proposes that religious educators and institutions approach relationships with young people through the lens of relational authority. And it's sort of easier to describe relational authority through what it isn't rather than what it is. So it means not being prescriptive, not leading with an agenda. It means listening and leading with a response not just saying, because I said so. Okay, that sounds interesting. I'm glad you got to uh, talk a little bit about it. Uh, Why don't we take a listen to the conversation now? Thanks, Katie. Thank you, Dominic. Ellen, I'm so excited to talk with you today. Hi, I'm so excited to be here, Katie. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the report? Let me give you like the 30-second version. The State of Religion in Young People 2020 is not only about young people's religious beliefs, but their practices, their identities, their relationships. It's more than beliefs because one of the core things we discovered in this data was that the religious lives of young people, their inner and outer lives, are so much more complicated than affiliated and unaffiliated can possibly unpack. Like those terms are insufficient. And so some of the reasons that that those terms no longer hold the weight they once did is because we're seeing that culturally we're in a more complex place where we need to do different things to build trust with young people because young people are forming bonds and constructing identities and building communities differently than even a decade ago. And so one of the things that we offer in response to the complexities we find in the data is a framework called relational authority, which is a kind of a response to some of these complexities, both in the culture and in the inner lives of young people that helps trusted adults 
do this work of building trust in their lives in ways that are responsive to some of these shifting realities. This is a really useful data set for adults, for parish leaders, for campus ministry leaders, basically anyone who's interested in the religious formation of young people. Mm -hmm. And personally, this was a really interesting report for me to read because I feel like this is a great way to sort of complicate the narrative of the nuns. The nuns is kind of defined as the 56 million religiously unaffiliated adults in the U.S. But of this of this group, young millennials are the generation with the highest religious unaffiliation. So they make up 36% of the nuns. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit of a doom and gloom narrative. So yeah. it's this idea that religious belief is declining. The future of religious belief is just up in the air. But the state of religion on young people actually really complicates that understanding mm-hmm. And shows it's a lot more complex than we might believe. So what do you think are some of the more interesting ways that this report shows there's really nuance to this group of the nuns? Yeah. First of all, I think you're exactly right talking about this overarching cultural narrative we have about the decline in religion and trust in religious institutions. And it's by far the most prominent in younger generations, but it is true in every generation. There's not one generation that's like really ticking upwards in terms of religious trust or affiliation. So we're dealing with a universal trend, but it's accelerated in Mm -hmm. this younger generation, which I think is worth noting because it's not like a young person's issue or something like that, where if we just add electric guitars to the mass, it will make a difference to the young people. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's something else is going on. And part of what's going on is these cultural, sociological, religious shifts in how we make meaning or form our identities or all of these things that you're thinking about. And when we do complicate the narrative, I think that there's an opportunity instead of gloom and doom. That's, I think, often the response to decline in religious affiliation. But those complications actually indicate a real wrestling with questions of meaning, identity, community, and purpose. We know, for example, that disaffiliated young people, so young people who in our surveys said that they are not affiliated with a specific religious tradition, either by choosing nothing in particular, atheist or agnostic in our surveys, also indicate living out religious beliefs on a daily basis or indicate going to religious institutions or having religious practices just because they're not affiliated and explicitly tell us they're not affiliated doesn't actually mean they're not practicing religious values. So part of what we get to do is like expand what religious can mean. Maybe we just are at a point culturally where we have to think about new language for these things. I mean, maybe I would pose this question to you. Even if you think about your own peers and stuff, are any of them not interested in questions of meaning and purpose and God? And there's just new ways to explore possibly. Absolutely. I think, you know, the part that really resonates with me there is you're you're so right to say that just because when a young person says, well, I'm religious, but it's maybe not taking the shape of I go to mass every Sunday Mm -hmm. or I I sort of participate in these traditional signs of religious belief. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they don't personally consider themselves religious because, you know, that the longing for community, that longing to aspire to do good, to live a moral life, that's all there. That doesn't go away. And then the question then becomes, well, how do religious groups bridge that gap? How do we mend the lack of trust that's been 
developing? Because I think that's sort of the second thing you put your finger on that I'd Mm -hmm. kind of like to explore a little bit is this idea that we've lost the trust, not only of our youngest generations, but, you know, of generations previous. Like this is not, as you say, sort of a exclusively millennial problem. Mm -hmm. Other generations have wrestled with the same issue. And so what perhaps are some ways that we can go about rebuilding that trust or regaining that? Yeah. For young people to feel receptive to the expertise, guidance, and wisdom of an authority, they need to feel that they are cared for first. So the credentials of an institution don't kind of lay the groundwork for trust in the way that they used to. Now, the groundwork for trust is care. So you have amazing teacher in high school, and one of them is like the most brilliant teacher you've ever had in your whole life, and you know that they know their stuff. You also have another teacher who's like also a great teacher, also brilliant, but like checks in with you, make sure you're doing all right, is like, hey, how are we doing taking the temperature of the room in terms of being online for all of 2020 and like making like doing this kind of more intentional relational work that's not just about communicating expertise as the reason you trust that teacher to teach you, but also doing this extra labor of demonstrating care for you as a whole person. That young people told us over and over, like with really high percentages throughout, that listening, integrity, transparency, care, and expertise was this kind of formula for feeling that you could trust somebody in the kind of way that allowed you to be then influenced by them, to be receptive to their expertise or their advice or their wisdom. And I think however we translate that to institutions is a question, because right now it makes sense to me in terms of relationships. But I do think that's like the question on the table. The question is, how do we build trust? Because we've lost it. When you try to think back to those kinds of influential role models in your own life and upbringing, where you can be like, the course of my my thinking or my my life was altered positively in this way because of this relationship or fostered something in me or encouraged me in this creative pursuit that I otherwise would have felt kind of embarrassed about. There, there are these hinge moments. And I even think when I hear stories of friends who are or are not in the church anymore, lots of times it comes down to one relationship that had that posture of invitation and that posture of relational authority. Like now, you know, we've put a term on it, but I feel like that's often the stories that I hear about people who stay or the reason that they don't is because they never had that kind of connection. Right. It's really a matter of, of listening, right. And sort of Mm -hmm. not being prescriptive with your advice or your conversation. It's you're you're not leading with an agenda. In other words, you're leading with a response. And Mm -hmm. I think institutionally, perhaps that's, really one of the more obvious places to kind of address, right? Mm -hmm. Because so often there's this idea of a a really strict hierarchy of of authority and obedience. And yes, that's often the case, but there's still room for dialogue within that. Mm -hmm. And there's a way of approaching those conversations that doesn't mean authority is always top down. You know, we strive for relational authority. We don't strive to be the voice on high from above. Yeah, we try to make the distinction too, like, there's authority, there's authoritarian, and there's bossy, you know, I'm like, <laughs> like, these are, these are, you know, different things. Like, yeah. we're not talking about authoritative or authoritarian, we're talking about authority, you know, which is a positive. But I, I think you're right, it's something that has to be wrestled with, because if you're not supposed to lead with an agenda, 
how does an institution which often has an agenda put into practice a disposition of listening first? I feel like there's an overarching dismissiveness toward young people, toward young people as youth in like a condescending way. Yeah, I so agree with that. I think, you know, and it's frustrating too, because so often I feel like there's this real sense of, well, what do the young people want? The young people want to be listened to and to have their opinions taken seriously, but you're not even letting them in the room or seriously considering those opinions in the first place. Yeah, I think that's very, very true. And when we do see young people getting a platform or a mic, it's often a very tokenized space. We've had young people who read our reports or have like listened in on webinars and they're like, yes, yes, this is true. Like nobody has asked me this yet. But if they did, I would have told them this. What 13-year-old can tell you? I have, internally, I've disaffiliated from the religion of my parents. But what we really know is when they look back, they can tell you something nebulous was going on in my experience of commitment, in my sense of belonging, in my own inability to feel I was getting the answers I had questions for. And unless we're very intentional about inviting them to conversations that are serious about their inner lives and the decisions they're making about their religious lives. And by religious, I mean this broadly, like the things they long for and they belong to and they seek, then we don't even know that they're working it out, but they are, they're like really working on it. Yeah. And how can you know that if you don't even ask the question in the first place? So one quote I really liked from the report which for me really rings true, is the following. Identity today is increasingly seen as something that each individual personally constructs piece by piece rather than something handed down from a prior generation or imposed by a community. So this to me is really interesting for a couple of reasons, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it too. This kind of ties into this idea of cafeteria Catholic, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that you can kind of pick and choose elements of your religious identity. Yeah. But sort of viewed in a positive light. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about that. Yeah. For a long time, identity was a a given. Somebody who says it a lot better than me is someone like Charles Taylor, who talks about when you're in a tribe, your identity, you are given it. But in the world of individualism, you're constructing it. So you are alone in the world, gathering up the pieces that make up who you are. And I had read in another report, not this one, somebody had talked about it like a personal management project, like we're project managing identities. When I heard this, that particular term, I immediately thought of like 10 girlfriends that I know, like who are like, oh, my life is in shambles. And so I'm going to whiten my teeth and I'm going to work on my book and I am going to run two miles. And and it's kind of like all of these things that like, the composite of which will make you feel that you're whole. I'm going to meditate, light a candle, then I'm going to journal. And, you know, that's not the same as constructing an identity, but I do think that we have like, we're at a place culturally where we take our identity from what's around us rather than feeling one, that it's internal and we're expressing it or two, that it's given to us by a tradition or a parent individualism rejects that we are the product of our nurturing and instead that we are the choices that we make. I don't know that I believe that that's true, but I think that's how we operate in the world. It's the externalization of self, that self is in what you present 
instead of in what's somehow internal or interior. I don't think like if you pointedly ask somebody, is yourself your, your brand on Instagram or is yourself when you're quietly laying in bed before you fall asleep? I don't think anybody would be like, I'm only myself on Instagram. But I think like in terms of how we move through the world and the, the effort that we make in cultivating ourselves, it is oriented toward this externalized piecemealing. We're creating rather than discovering or being handed something. Announcing Loyola University Chicago's new School of Environmental Sustainability. Solve today's climate challenges at one of the only schools in the nation dedicated to environmental sustainability. Ranked as one of the most eco-friendly universities in the country, Loyola is called to empower the next generation of environmental leaders. Join the virtual grand opening event on December 14th. Learn more and register at luc.edu slash commonweal. And so to bring that back to the idea of religion and constructing a religious identity in a sort of similar fashion, how do the young people in your study maybe talk about that or perceive that? How does the church respond to young people who experience their religious life as one that's composed of many, many elements that they pick and choose? Yeah, I don't know what a church would say. I can guess, but we didn't interview church figures for the report or institutional organizations at all. I think I can guess because so many religious institutions have been notably dismissive of or opposed to like anything but like all in or all out about how you identify as a Catholic, for example, is it's about checking these boxes. Like realistically, membership as a Catholic is about baptism and not the performance of saintly moral things, although that would be great. So there's, I think the church's response, any kinds of, all kinds of churches and religious institutions is varied, but for the most part, they are interested in handing down an identity for one per, for a person to inhabit. The ways that young people are picking up pieces of identity from myriad places is really a way of, I think, demonstrating that they're not feeling all of those pieces are available to them from one institution. Like, if nothing else, I think we can claim that. Like, we can say they didn't feel that their purpose was clear or their this aspect of their identity was accepted in this space. So they had to go look for it somewhere else. That it it often starts with a feeling that you don't fully belong in this place and that's why you have to go out from it to seek the rest of the picture. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge to those communities, right? To then go yeah. back and to try and address those needs in a in a creative way or to try, you know, to sort of have that conversation. Yeah. I think that it it goes back to something that we talked about a little bit ago, like that it starts with listening. The people who are very committed to the thriving of institutions rather than the thriving of young people as kind of the centerpiece of their objectives, they're quick to have a narrative about why there's a departure. I remember being in high school. 
I went to a Catholic high school. I had a question about a religious question about like something doctrinal. Actually, I think that it was like, why did Mary have to be a virgin? It's very, it wasn't like a make or break it moment for me, but I was like, why'd you have to be a virgin? That seems weird. It seems kind of just like a obsession with like the sexual, the sexuality of a young woman. I didn't understand its like significance for salvation history. And, you know, I'm 16 and being like, somebody answer this. And I was in a theology class and I asked this question and I was like, if she was sinless, which she was, why didn't she save us? Like, what's the thing here? Somebody explain this to me. And one theology teacher said, it's just what's taught. That's just the teaching. And then a while later, a different Catholic mentor, not at my high school, I asked the same question because he specifically was like, hey, do you have any questions about the Catholic faith that I can answer for you or that's like you wrestling with? And I asked the exact same question. Why a virgin? Why sinless? What, what, what difference does it make? And it wasn't necessarily that this was like, that the answer was important, but he was like, oh, very cool question. I totally get where you're coming from. The reasons that like in my own reading and research, you know, are X, Y, Z, like it took two minutes, you know? Yeah. And it was a point for me in my like religious question asking, but I, I felt like asking questions is not the same as expressing doubt. And there are ways to ask questions that are exciting because the tradition is rich enough to bear my questions. Mm -hmm. And that was a turning point for me that I was like, this is, this can be positive. This can be exciting. It doesn't have to be like a tisk tisk to ask questions. But I think like lots of young people leave before they get a chance to ask a question, like a question about their identity, their sense of belonging, a doctrinal question, if it's doctrinal, a question about the history of their institution or something that comes up in their holy text. If they don't feel safe to ask that question, they will just slowly sneak out the back door. And I think that's why relational authority matters because it's not necessarily about the answer somebody gave me as much as the way they responded to my, me having a question at all. Mm-hmm. This is related, I think, to the identity question because it feels like if you don't feel safe enough to even ask a question or clarify something and you wonder if this space is for you and you don't have somebody there you can even find out or ask, you know, you just slip away. So I think it can be something that institutions learn from rather than like prescribe a narrative about these departures. Right. You know, I also went to Catholic high school and then to Catholic college and people who I had, I think for me, the most formative conversations about vocation and, you know, what I wanted to do with my life Yes, were women who I looked up to and admired and still kind of want to be when I grow up, just like them as individuals. But it also included a Jesuit priest who was a Vietnam War vet and, you know, had lived a life that to my 18-year-old self, you know, looked as different from mine at that time as possible, right? And yet the, the sort of authority and the wisdom that he was able to bring to these conversations of my just like, well, what do I do? Questions. Mm-hmm was so valuable. So I really appreciate hearing about the mentors that you've had. And I think that's really powerful. I think that it's rare and increasingly rare for young people to have, specifically to have religious mentors or faith leaders 
participating in conversations around careers with them. The language of vocation is used in Catholic spaces or religious spaces in general. And I think it's really helpful because it helps situate a conversation about your skills, desires, passions, like the gifts that you inherently have, and then how you use those gifts to participate in the common good and to like give back to the world. Like vocation holds all of that. And now we have like career counselors. And I think we still think about careers as vocations, but we've, we don't talk about them with any sort of religious assumptions anymore. So we've like stripped the word vocation, but we do talk about work and careers as largely the centerpiece of our lives and our livelihoods now. You know, like work is where you go to meet your friends and hang out and live out your values. And if your work isn't meaningful, then you like young people often say that if work feels pointless to them, it isn't worth doing or they would switch jobs if it didn't feel meaningful. So there is this conflation of work with vocation, but they're not the same thing in part because something that's missing at least is the way that a mentor or a guide can help a young person do that work of introspection and model something that might be totally foreign. So I think we have to think about modeling. And part of what that modeling is, is like, can you find meaning regardless of the type of work you're doing? Like, you know, are some jobs meaningful and some jobs meaningless? No, all jobs are meaningful, you know, because because work is inherently meaningful. But then also, how does a young person see their parents return from work? Exhausted, fatigued, depressed, or delighted at having spent a day laboring in whatever capacity? So I think religious leaders have a, a real opportunity to step in and actually help weave together narratives that have come apart. There's not actually a wealth of language to think about, like, how am I contributing to the common good? How am I fulfilling my own sense of purpose? How am I living out my values? And religious leaders have all of that vocabulary and rhetoric at their disposal because they've been talking about the interior life and discernment for so long they could step into that space, not just when it's like, are you going to go to seminary? You know, but like, are you going to go to into biochemical engineering? Let's talk, you know, let's talk about that too. We've complicated the narrative of the nuns, right? Like we've shown that even if they identify with certain religious beliefs, there's this idea of sort of like picking and choosing the ones that they think they find most true or most applicable. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, it is really a loss for religious institutions to yeah. have these young people leaving or not coming at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is important to acknowledge that. And so what do you sort of make of that? And what can yeah. religious leaders kind of take away from that? Yeah, I think, you know, we're not fretting over this decline in trust in religious institutions because part of even what has come up from our conversation, Katie, is like that something can be done. And also because the response to the needs of a new generation and an upcoming generation, it demands creativity. And creativity is always, it's always hope-filled. We, we will have to let go of some of the things I think we have put the stock of hope in. But the things that I think there are ways for us to 
No, we have to be creative about, for example, building trust in ways that isn't a given because we're from a credentialed institution or because we have letters after our name. Like, but that doesn't mean that trust is impossible. It means that trust is now earned through care instead of through credentials. Like, I think when we think about these losses or the decline in institutional religion, we're often thinking about only the loss and like fair there's something to like mourn like we're we are we're missing something by losing the opportunity to gather on regular on a regular basis like the ritual of it like there's a lot of very important things happening in institutional religion but at the same time the things that need to stay like trust and meaning and identity and belonging those things can just be like reimagined like we can figure out new ways to find expression for things like the common good the common good is a rhetorical tool that religious institutions have long brought to the public conversation so i don't think we should lose those things even as we see a decline in religious institutions like there's just gonna we just have to be more creative about how those things are introduced or where and how they're modeled and how care proceeds how care can be like the the pathway to introducing things i don't think we're ever going to lose the things that are most important i think religions have a responsibility to stay relevant and part of how they do that is by meeting the real needs of real people and you have to respond to real people then not projections of real people or ideas of real people you know but the people who show up at your door Well, what a great point to end on. Ellen, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, thanks for having me today, Katie. It's been such a pleasure. Springtide's new report is called The State of Religion and Young People 2020, Relational Authority. And it's available for free at www.springtideresearch.org. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>